Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast. You may have seen it in the news all over the world, but in February, the US deported a 95-year-old former Nazi concentration camp guard to stand trial in Germany. His name? Friedrich Karl Berger, a Tennessee resident who's lived in the US since the 1950s when he moved there after the war. This is the latest in a string of cases in the US stretching back to the 1980s where those accused of being Nazis and committing crimes against humanity have been revealed and put to face justice. But how did so many former Nazis end up in the US? Did they lie, move illegally, or were they perhaps more disturbingly welcomed in? To tell us more, I was joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author Eric Lixblau. Eric has spent years researching this history and finding out just why the US became a refuge for Nazis. I know you're going to find the history he reveals astonishing because it is truly shocking what he was able to find out. So here is Eric Lixblau on The Nazis Next Door. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on The World Wars. How has your week been? I'm guessing super busy, given the developments in the US on these historic crimes of Nazi-sponsored persecution. It has been, yeah. We just had another deportation of a Nazi guard, a 95-year-old from Tennessee, flown back over the weekend into Frankfurt and is in custody now, 75 years after the end of the war. Amazing. This is an astonishing case. It's the case of... Friedrich Karl Berger. So could you give us the details, a bit of background? Who is he and what's he accused of? Sure. It's a remarkable case, not only because of Berger's age, as you said, 95 years old, but also how he was identified, which was through the records in a sunken Nazi ship in the Baltic years ago. So Berger was a camp guard, a lower level SS camp guard, at a camp near Hamburg called Nuengame. In the late stages of the war, he was 19, 20 years old at that time. Then about 14 years after the end of the war in 1959, he emigrated to the United States. At that time, there was a glitch, a loophole in U.S. immigration law that did not make it illegal for an ex-Nazi, an SS soldier to immigrate to the United States. 
U.S. immigration policies at the end of the war and for the years afterwards were a bit of a helter-skelter mess, and this was a loophole that he was able to use, which made it more difficult to get him deported once he was discovered just a few years ago. But he moved to Memphis, Tennessee, lovely city, a music capital of the United States, and lived out his life, became a father, a grandfather. And it was not until a few years ago that the Justice Department and its Nazi hunting unit, which was set up in 1981, expecting perhaps to be in existence for two or three years, but still in existence today, 40 years later, the Nazi hunting unit and their lead prosecutor, Eli Rosenbaum, who I wrote about extensively in my book, The Nazis Next Door, came on to the roster, essentially, of Nazi personnel, including guards and administrators and the commandant, at this and other camps that had been in a Nazi ship that had fled with prisoners, I should add, at the end of the war and was sunken mistakenly by the British Air Force in, I believe, April of 1945. And a number of concentration camp prisoners on that ship, along with Nazis, were killed, unfortunately. They had been forced to evacuate. And at the bottom of this ship, retrieved years later, were rosters and ID cards, amazingly preserved and legible, including an index card with Friedrich Berger's name on it, And it took many years for this to make it into the hands of the United States. It's important to note, I think the big picture here, is that Nazi refugees were a problem that the world did not deal with for decades and decades. Germany itself did not take back Nazi refugees from the U.S. or other parts of the world really until 10 years ago. And the United States did not begin any earnest effort to find Nazi refugees, some of them very high level. Berger was a low-level guard, 19, 20 years old, but he allegedly took part in atrocities. But many of the ones in the U.S. were much, much higher level, a top aide to Adolf Eichmann, who was responsible for writing parts of what became the final solution under Eichmann and the Jewish problem, a commandant at a horrible camp in Estonia. I could go on and on. But the United States had these people living, thousands of them, in our midst until the late 70s, early 80s, before anyone in the government took any interest. It was sort of an open secret in the United States and the rest of the world. South America is famous as the main landing spot for Nazis, Argentina principally. And that's been built up through Hollywood mythology. But it is partly a myth because there were thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, who made it to other parts of the world, to beyond South America, to the United States, to Australia, and many who stayed within Europe. Probably the biggest number were those who didn't go far from home in Germany and other parts of Europe. And no one really cared. We prosecuted a dozen or so of the top officials at Nuremberg. There were about 1,200 auxiliary members who were prosecuted as part of the Nuremberg trials. And within a few years, the world sort of lost interest in bringing those responsible for the worst genocide in the history of civilization to task for what they had done. 
ranging from, again, top-level prosecutors to mid-level enablers to low-level operational people who were directly involved in these atrocities at camps. So in the case of Berger, to come back to Friedrich Berger, these records and this one index card in particular from the bottom of this Nazi ship sunken at the bottom of the Baltics, believe it or not, you can't make this stuff up, made its way into the hands of American prosecutors and to Eli Rosenbaum, the lead prosecutor, a dogged Nazi hunter now for more than 30 years. And they tracked him down in Tennessee where he had been living And he was in his early 90s by the time they started proceedings against him in the United States in immigration court. And as I mentioned, it became a bit of an issue because he had not come into the country illegally. There are upwards of 150 investigations that reached the stage of deportation or criminal proceedings in the United States in the course of the last 35 years or so. That on the one hand seems like a big number. On the other hand, not that big a number, considering that there were, by one estimate, as many as 10,000 people who got into the United States. But the process of getting someone deported from the United States, many of these people who had citizenship, including Berger, is an arduous one, is very litigious. And that's not something the United States does lightly, especially with citizens. It's easier with someone who is a permanent resident. It's obviously far easier if you're here illegally in the first place. But in Berger's case, he had not lied, as many of these other cases were. They had lied to get in the United States and said, no, I was never a member of the German military or the SS. I was a POW from Poland or wherever. So they were able to cross the hurdle, legal hurdle with Berger by showing that he had still violated a law that was put in place only years after the end of the war in 1978 called the Holtzman Amendment, which is named after a congresswoman who really pushed this issue, who tried to wake up the country to the fact that there were Nazis in our backyard. And so it took upwards of two years, the deportation process leading up to the end of last week and last weekend when Berger was finally deported to Frankfurt. And at the time of His arrival, the prosecutors in Germany said that he had agreed to be interviewed and that they would take up his case to determine what should happen. This was the third case in Germany, believe it or not, just this month against ex-Nazi personnel. One was a 100-year-old man who had worked at a camp, I believe at Sachhausen. Another was a 95-year-old woman who was involved in sort of the administrative, the levers of power and death, really. And it's important and interesting to note that Germany really did nothing about this until about 2011. And the turning point there, a critical turning point, was the deportation of John Demjanjuk, a name your viewers may know. His was probably the most arduous of all the cases litigated in the United States, beginning in Ohio, where he was a worker at an auto plant in the mid-80s. His case drew international attention because originally he was believed to be, mistakenly as it turned out, Ivan the Terrible, the infamous guard at Treblinka, who in the realm of horrible Nazi guards who did horrible things to prisoners, forcing them into gas chambers, et cetera, et cetera, he was considered the most horrible of all. And he was actually deported, Demyonik was, to Israel because this was a major case, probably the biggest case since Adolf Eichmann himself, who the who Mossad and the Israelis swooped into Argentina and captured and took back to Israel for trial in 1960. This was a big case. And it was the Israelis who discovered that this was a case of mistaken identification with someone who had the same last name and 
a derivation of the first name, and looked remarkably like John Demyanyuk. John, which translates as Ivan in his original Ukrainian. And he was freed and sent back. And then years later, the United States still pursued this, Eli Rosenbaum again at the Justice Department, by saying that he was, in fact, a Nazi guard at a different camp at Sobibor, where tens of thousands died. Not quite as horrific a place as Treblinka, but the scale of misery is very high. So he was not Ivan the Terrible, but he was a camp guard who took part in horrible, horrible atrocities. And Germany had a change of heart after international pressure from the U.S. and elsewhere and took Demyanyuk back. He'd been a citizen. He was stripped of his citizenship. He was deported. And Germany put him on trial. He died after he was convicted at trial before he was formally sentenced. And that began really a wave of new attention by German prosecutors who opened hundreds of investigations through really intense investigative work by their prosecutors and belatedly began prosecutions of people deported from other countries, as with Berger and several others that we've had in the last four or five years here since Demyanyuk, but also against Germans right in their own backyard including these two cases. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And so let's go back to the case of Berger here. What is it that he's actually accused of? So you say that he worked at a camp near Hamburg, and this was a camp for political prisoners, was it? Or was it predominantly a camp for the persecution of Jews? It was a camp called Nungama by Hamburg, which was principally a work camp. One of the smaller ones and less well-known, it was a sub-camp of Sachshausen, not far away. And at the camp that Berger was at, prisoners were literally worked to death in the mines in Germany's last gasp to produce minerals and products for the war effort. This was in early 1945. He was there, I believe, for about four or five months, beginning at the very start of 1945. And under the charges, he took part in and was aware, allegedly, of 
the atrocities that were going on there of prisoners being kept in atrocious subhuman conditions, worked to death. There were dozens who died just in the last weeks as they were preparing to evacuate them, including on the ship that I mentioned that ended up being bombed by the British. So he says in his defense, there was a trial in Tennessee and he testified. He said he couldn't believe that he was facing deportation at that point after having been here in the United States for 60 years, I believe. And he said, as many do, uh, the exact quote was, I was ordered to go there as a 19-year-old. And he said he was not aware of any prisoners being killed. He didn't know that. He didn't know what was going on. Of course, I was just following orders has become an infamous alibi for thousands and thousands of Nazi personnel after the war. And even beyond that, for those who have participated in genocide around the world for acts not of war or of military service, but of murder and genocide. And, you know, one of the propositions, the accusations that prosecutors in the United States have brought in these cases, as with Berger, is that they had a choice to go to a concentration camp or not. And many of them said, hey, I'd rather be in a concentration camp doing this, in this case, not only to Jews who were at Nuengame, but also to all sorts of POWs from Poland, from Russia, I believe from Ukraine. Yeah, I'd rather be doing that even knowing what was going on in these places than actually fighting in Berlin or on the Italian front or wherever the case may be. So they had a choice and they chose to be at these places. And I think one of the questions he was asked is, did you ever ask to leave, to go to a different assignment? And he said, no. So, you know, this is in some ways a moral and ethical dilemma. There are people in the United States and elsewhere around the world who have questioned at what point do you stop? Is a 95-year-old, in the case of Berger, or a 100-year-old, in the case of a man earlier this month in Germany, is that too old? And I asked Eli Rosenbaum that question repeatedly when I was interviewing him for my book. And his stance, which I think is persuasive, is that so long as someone is of sound mind and health under the U.S. judicial system to be prosecuted, to be deported, to understand what's going on, to physically be able to withstand a trial— then that person should be held to account no matter how much time has passed when you're talking about, again, acts of genocide and brutality sort of even beyond comprehension. And that's a path that the United States has followed now for 40 years. And we thought a few years ago, perhaps we had seen the last one. There was a man named Breyer in Philadelphia, I remember that I wrote about probably four or five years ago. And each time now, the headlines are, oh, the last Nazi deported, he was probably 91 or 92, I think. And there are still more out there. And again, you can debate, I think, the morality and ethics, I guess is a better word. But I think Eli and American prosecutors do make a persuasive case. And obviously, the Germans have now belatedly taken that same line that, first of all, there is no statute of limitations on murder. And second of all, that a crime of such unthinkable scope, there is no deadline on how long you should be prosecuted for that and how long that should be held up for justice. You can kind of start to get your head around it when you think about how Germany was divided after the Second World War and remained divided until reunification in the 1990s. And of course, the turmoil that starts to kick up after 1945 and the start of the Cold War. 
But it's almost unbelievable to think that the US becomes an asylum for Nazi war criminals. And I know you say that some people lie to get over the borders. Some people were just able to pass through legally. But is there also a little bit of political dealing going on here as well? Because I know that there were some people who were brought over, like key scientists, for example, to be part of the Cold War effort as well. Is this a part of the problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, that's a a central part of my book. Uh, Operation Paperclip was what that program was called. And there were 1,600 scientists and others who were brought over as part of that program beginning within months of the war. It was originally intended to be a much, much smaller program to basically beat the Russians. You know, the Russians were the new enemy, really, even before the end of World War II, even before Germany's surrender. And we had already entered into sort of a Cold War mentality. And we wanted the scientific minds of the Germans that had shown such unbelievable technological prowess with the V-2 rockets that were raining down on London, on Antwerp and elsewhere. We wanted them. The Russians wanted them. The British wanted them. The French wanted them. And we got some of the best, for better or worse. And we got Werner von Braun was the most famous, who was really the brainchild of the V-2 rocket under Hitler, and in producing the V-2 rocket, was overseeing horrific slave labor camps in Germany, where Jewish prisoners and POWs and others were worked to death, if not executed for malfeasance on the production lines in building these rockets. And he was complicit in that, in terms of his desire to turn out rockets for Hitler. And one of his top aides also ended up in the United States, Arthur Rudolph. They were both central, especially Werner von Braun, but Arthur Rudolph, to a less publicized extent, central in the success of the American space program, in the Saturn program and Apollo. And Werner von Braun was really deified. And he had his own show on Disney. He became almost a folk hero. He made it into a 60s anti-war song, a folk song that was famous at the time for building Nazi rockets. And The program became really just a symbol in hindsight of how far the United States was willing to go in the Cold War to accept Nazi persecutors, because officially no one was supposed to be allowed in who was considered a quote unquote ardent Nazi, which seems like sort of a made up term, an ardent Nazi. What do the non-ardent Nazis do? And those were the marching orders that were signed by President Truman and then signed by President Eisenhower after him. And the records of these hundreds and hundreds of scientists were whitewashed and eliminated in terms of their actual Nazi service. Someone like von Braun, someone like Arthur Rudolph, who was the guy in this V2 production plant, who was literally on the lines working hand in hand with the SS to make sure that they produced their rocket shipment for Hitler for that month. And in the process, they literally had built a factory into the side of a mountain in a place called Pinamunda in Germany, northern Germany. And Of course, factory workers, dozens died every week in the production through disease, through malnutrition, starving away. And the worst of the lot, if they were accused of malfeasance, were brought to the center of the production facility and everyone was gathered around all the other prisoners to witness this while the SS hung them from a crane. So they were executed. And Arthur Rudolph was the man who became a big shot with the U.S. Saturn space program who oversaw the actual production. He was a scientist working hand in hand with the SS. So we had many of these. And there, were, there was also a doctor in Texas, you know, Hubertus Strughold, 
who was a celebrated doctor in aviation medicine. He was responsible for essentially keeping the astronauts alive in space that Werner von Braun was helping to propel up there by working with gravitational pressure and what wasn't said, what was actively covered up by Strogold, Dr. Strogold and the U.S., was that he had learned his craft at concentration camps in Germany, where he was a medical doctor overseeing experimentation on Jewish prisoners, many of them children, at Bergen-Belsen, at Dachau, where many, many died. Those who didn't die were sickened. They were put in these pressure chambers this was one part of the experimentation to see how much pressure the human body could withstand. And those who didn't die were traumatized, understandably. They basically wanted to see the limits of what the body could withstand in space. And that's what Dr. Strokehold then put in place in the United States with U.S. astronauts. There were other experiments where they would force feed water to see what levels of seawater would kill someone for German pilots who crashed in the ocean. They would test this on the prisoners at Dachau. And Strogold was not only a citizen of the United States for many years, but an honored practitioner of aviation science. There was an award named after him until just about six or seven years ago that was finally pulled. There was a library named after him. These were not secret members of U.S. society. These were upstanding citizens. In Alabama, which is where von Braun and many of his people were based, you know, there's an area near the scientific production facility that they sent up there in Alabama, which is populated today with the children and grandchildren of those original scientists from Operation Paperclip. And very few of those were ever prosecuted. Arthur Rudolph was one who, in the 1980s, when we started to take this stuff seriously, was in fact sent back to Germany. That was before Germany started taking these cases seriously themselves, and the U.S. snuck him back into Germany, basically sort of dropped him there when he agreed to leave the country but Germany was furious about that. Not only didn't they prosecute him, but they were quite upset with the United States for that at that point. I suppose my final question I've got to ask you, Eric, is do you think that any of this process has done its job? The Nuremberg trials, of course, convicted so few people. And as you mentioned, scientists and just so many thousands of people who perpetrated Nazi war crimes have been able to live out their full lives around the world. Has this process brought justice for those who suffered during and before the Second World War? I think it's brought some measure of justice, but belated justice. And I've certainly asked that question to many of the survivors, the children of the survivors. And certainly they wish, and people in the U.S. justice system wish, first of all, that they had never been allowed in in the first place. And second of all, that we had started chasing them much, much sooner, 35 years earlier, rather than 1980 and 1945, when they started coming in. But the fact that we have identified them, that there is a measure of accountability, that there is justice, I think that is a satisfying end for many of the survivors that I've spoken to. And it's also important for the next wave, unfortunately, of refugees from genocide. And the Justice Department has been going after others, war criminals who have fled to the United States from Rwanda, for instance from the Balkan War and from Bosnia, et cetera. And it sends a message that the United States should no longer be a safe haven for war criminals as it was allowed to be for some time. Eric, I think that's such an important point to end on. Where can people read more about this? 
Well, The Nazis Next Door was my book, which came out a few years ago, and that's available on Amazon. And I researched this extensively and spoke with Eli Rosenbaum, who I consider a real hero in this effort, as well as to even some of the Nazi refugees who were here and their families. So I think it's a somewhat shameful chapter in American history when you look not only at the Nazis who were allowed to come in, but also looking at the Holocaust survivors who were denied entry to the United States at that same time. These were Nazi refugees who were basically getting these treasured visas that were denied, partly out of anti-Semitism, partly out of incompetence, to tens of thousands of Holocaust survivors who instead were forced to stay in displaced persons camps in and around Germany and Poland and elsewhere, in the same concentration camps where the Nazis had victimized them. They were still living there for three to four years in some cases, while the immigration policies in the U.S. made it so easy for the Nazi persecutors to come in, almost invited them in to come back to your question about the Cold War. The immigration policies were tilted in the post-war years towards accepting Eastern European refugees because of the looming Cold War, that we wanted to get people who were about to become a part of the Soviet bloc into the United States. That meant, though, that along with war refugees were coming many of the Nazi persecutors and collaborators themselves. So we had waves of people from Eastern Europe who were top administrators, commandants at Nazi concentration camps in Croatia, the interior minister who signed basically the death warrants for thousands and thousands of victims, you know, lived in California for the better part of 40 years and on and on. So those people got the visas, the spots to America that really the Holocaust survivors should have gotten. And instead, we closed the doors to them. The injustice and the inequality is unbelievable. It's staggering, it? yes. For as long as these trials continue, hopefully they can bring some closure. And like you say, show that the US is not a safe haven for war criminals. Thank you so much for coming on The World Wars, Eric. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.